This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for educational and informational purposes only. What's up, Warriors? It's me, Dr. Z. Me, Dr. C. Dr. C, we are lining up superstar guest after superstar guest. One after another. Another great one today. We landed the queen. We got Dr. Julie Cantor. I wasn't expecting her, honestly, to say yes to me. I thought she was going to be like, no, man, I don't have time for this nonsense right now. Well, we appreciate Julie coming. We appreciate Julie Cantor so much, more than just for the podcast. We appreciate everything she does. Dr. Julie Cantor is at uh, the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Most of the warriors who are listening to this are super familiar with Dr. Cantor. Dr. Cantor, welcome to Cheat Codes. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's it's an honor and and a pleasure to have you here. You know, everybody knows about the work you do in sickle cell disease. Uh, They may not know how much work you do in sickle cell disease, but they certainly know that you are, it's your nine to five and it's your five to nine. But my interest in the at least beginning part of this podcast is to learn a little bit more about Dr. Julie Cantor. I'm, uh, I'm always curious. And I was talking to Mike about this today. He's like, what's on our agenda for the podcast? And I was like, you know, I don't really know how Dr. Julie Cantor became Dr. Julie Cantor. So let's talk about that. What is, what was your road to becoming this huge, prominent figure in sickle cell disease in 2020? It was actually a very unusual road in a number of ways. And even more unusual that I'm an adult sickle cell provider. Um, All of those things were not done in a usual order of things. Let's see, starting from the beginning without going too far back, I went into medicine because I thought I was gonna be an orthopedist. So you can't get much further away from there. I loved, still love sports and athletics, been an athlete my whole life. And when I realized that orthopedics was so much more about surgery than about taking care of people, I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do. And when was that med med school down in Tulane? Med school at Tulane. And at the same time, when I was in medical school at Tulane, I took an elective that is even more confusing to figure out how I got into this elective because it didn't exist. I made it up where I got to be in pediatric hemonc as a second year medical student. So before you do your third year and I really loved it. I loved the kids. I loved treating all types of diseases. I like learning about sickle cell disease. I like learning about cancer. And from that moment on, I would not be swayed. I was going to be a pediatric hematologist oncologist. I love that. So you were at Tulane. Does that mean you are originally from Louisiana? I'm, a, I'm New Orleans born. Love that. Love that. And did you play sports growing up then? I played sports my whole life, mostly focused on soccer and played soccer in college. Really? And college was St. Louis. College was Washington University. Yeah, I've been there. I was Washu Bear. That's awesome. See, this is the kind of, these are the nuggets that I just was like, I was craving. I needed to know this. So you decided, Peds Hemonk, there's no turning back. This is the one. And then where do you go for fellowship? So I went to Colorado for residency, and then I went back to Washington University in St. Louis for fellowship. Let's talk about residency really quickly in Colorado. Did you run into any uh, mentors that changed the way you think about Peds Hemonk while you were there? Did they shape you at all? Interestingly, I've, I've never had a traditional mentorship relationship. Nothing about my research career or even really my medical career has been traditional. My first mentor was Charles Schur down in New Orleans. He was the person I worked with when I did an elective. 
Um, I ended up carrying that elective all the way through fourth year of medical school, if you could continue to call it an elective. And when I got to Colorado, uh, I didn't really have a mentor until my end of my residency when I knew I was going to be in PT Monk and I had no idea what the inside of a lab really looked like. And I needed to know because we didn't do that much research in residency at the time. I had um, done a little bit of work with a guy named Chris Silliman, Dr. Chris Silliman, who's a phenomenal uh, translational researcher in transfusion medicine. And I went to work with him on an elective, and that was where I got my first real project, my first, you know, not my first publication, but one of the first. And uh, what we did is studied platelets, and we studied platelets that were um, stored for transfusion. And we looked at things that activate those platelets and how those affect patients with cancer. He was also doing sickle cell disease research at that time, looking at various transfusions, looking at uh, some signs of activation, platelet activation, and other things in sickle cell. So I left Colorado um, and, and really kept, I still keep in touch with Dr. Silliman. He's awesome. And went into WashU and actually went to WashU and said, I'm going to be um, a pediatric oncologist. I'm, my focus is going to be, yeah, my focus is going to be in long-term follow-up because I really wanted to know the aftermath. I felt like we didn't for a long time, do enough of a good job of survivorship and ensuring that survivorship, that we had good outcomes beyond the treatment period. But what I found as a fellow was that I felt like in cancer, I always had a second option or a third option. And I didn't have that in sickle cell disease. And sometimes I didn't even have a first option. And there were so many questions that I couldn't get answers to. From there, I decided I wanted to answer those questions. In a very long story, I also started working further with platelets during my fellowship and with P-selectin. Interesting because I wanted to look at P-selectin and P-selectin activation in crisis. Could we block P-selectin? Could we you know, change the course of retinopathy by blocking VEGF, which I also looked at through platelets, a few other similar things. And I won't name any names, but I was told, no, we're not going to be doing that because that's not what we do here at WashU. And, but it never left me that we still needed to answer so many of these questions. And I really was actually very interested in the role of platelets and sickle cell. Well, while I was a fellow, my dad died. And that sort of forced my hand in some ways to go back to New Orleans. So I went back to New Orleans to be the clinical director of the sickle cell center there. Is that a pretty big program? They, they have a good number of patients? It was a it was a decent sized program, yeah. I think they had about five hundred patients, about two hundred. You were at the Children's Hospital. No, so New Orleans is sort of Harry. a funny place. It um even though it's a relatively small city, there's two distinct now three distinct pediatric programs. When I was there, it was mostly Tulane and LSU. LSU ran Children's, Tulane ran Tulane, and nobody would play nice in the sandbox. So the sickle cell was really housed at Tulane. That's where the sickle cell center of Southern Louisiana is to this day. And my goal was to revamp it and to do more research, but really to have a clinical focus. While I also ran the pediatric bone marrow transplant program because they didn't have one. And I wanted to be able to transplant sickle cell. Well, while I was there, I actually learned that I really missed research and could not do my job without doing research. So it wasn't an option for me at Tulane. They needed me as a full-time clinician. There was no way I was ever going to have that option. I wasn't going to get the mentorship that I needed. Uh, and so 
I realized long-term that as much as I love New Orleans where my whole family is, Tulane wasn't for me. Uh, of note, the Tulane pediatric program has since collapsed. It's completely collapsed. It's actually collapsed into the children's program and they're sort of pseudo combined, but all of that was happening while I was there. So I went to South Carolina right. to run their program. And that's really where you started to make a huge difference in sickle cell disease. But what, what pulled you to MUSC? Uh, confusing circumstances, like a lot of other things. So I I needed to get out of, of Tulane. We were watching the wall sort of burning around us. My husband was the pediatric residency program director at Tulane, which he loved doing. But we really, they were moving Tulane, at the time they moved Tulane Pediatrics out of downtown New Orleans and into Metairie, which is a suburb essentially. And it's moving away from the sickle cell population and away from all the reasons we wanted to be doing what we do. And so that wasn't for us. So we wanted out. And I met uh, the head of the PT Monk program from MUSC during a sickle cell transplant meeting. She and I were on the same trial and she had offhandedly said to me, you know, if you ever need a new place to come, we have 500 patients and you can ask whatever questions you want to ask. So when I decided I was leaving, I called her. Wow. So a lot of things to unpack there. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in this P-selectin story that you started thinking about early and that's of importance to warriors right now because of, you know, what we've talked about in episode, I, I believe it was episode five, Dr. C, where we talked about ADACVO. Um, and the sticky proteins in sickle cell patients and how white blood cells can be sticky. And that's kind of what Dr. Cantor is referring to. And she started asking that question. That must've been what, maybe 10 ish years ago then? A little bit longer, not going to date myself too much. (laughs) But it's really where I realized what an inflammatory condition sickle cell was and that I felt like by just targeting the red cells, we were missing the point. Yeah, and that's definitely come to fruition. We see that, and then that's expanded our ability to have tools for sickle cell disease. So awesome, awesome, awesome. So you get to MUSC, and you start doing really cool work. So I get to MUSC, and on my way between Tulane and, and MUSC, I recognize that it would make a lot more sense in some ways to have a more joint pediatric adult program because you shared resources, right? This Often it's a familiar, familial disease, so you often have you know, a mom and her baby both have a sickle cell disease. Why are we using one case manager and one social worker for the mom and one for the baby when maybe you can, if you treat people as a family unit, it would work better, which is what they did in the hemophilia group down in New Orleans. When I came to MUSC, I came with a few plans. And one of them was that I was going to develop a lifespan center. And that was all mostly agreed upon. Unfortunately, the mostly was the problem. It was agreed upon by all of pediatrics and by hematology. Sounds like a great idea. We'd love you to develop this lifespan program. Internal medicine at MUSC apparently didn't get in on that memo, but that's where some of the work I really did started. It's also where I moved to a place where we had a lot more patients from more rural areas. And I really started to understand and learn more about access to care. And in between all of that, we participated when I was in New Orleans in the um, L-glutamine trial. So I got my first taste of, of clinical trials and from there joined every other pretty much clinical trial I could get my hands on. Um, and Cause the next one I actually joined was the Prasigrel trial. I joined it cause I wanted to really look at this role of platelets. And that's really, I think where I got my start in some respects in the clinical trial world. Cause I ended up on the steering committee because of all my previous work in platelets. So it sort of built in two different directions. I built on the clinical trial pathway of, 
learning about endpoints and identifying those endpoints and improving our ability to analyze them. I learned about how hard it is to define endpoints in, in sickle cell disease and how truly heterogeneous the disease is. Um, I, I learned a lot about how we could alter the course of the disease in some people while it wouldn't affect other people and how did we determine that. At the same time, I wanted to focus on how do I get the right people into care? I started seeing people in their 20s and 30s who had either never seen a hematologist or hadn't seen one since they were two. And how could that happen? How could we let that happen in the United States? And how did it change the course? Wow. Unreal. There's a lot of sort of themes within your career that, that you've sort of uh, aligned yourself with. And access to care has been one that I, I, I see you address basically at every single national meeting these days. Um, someone from your team, someone associated with you, some consortium you're part of is always addressing this issue of access to care. I mean, you were talking about telemedicine before telemedicine became a hot topic. Tell us a little bit about that. So also in South Carolina, um, I was lucky actually, MUSC was really talking about telemedicine before everybody else was. And they had a center for telemedicine. And again, we recognized really quickly that we needed to get care to more people in a more efficient way. And there are just not enough people treating sickle cell and certainly not enough people treating adults. By then I was fairly adept at treating adults. I will note that I work and continue to work side by side with an internal medicine physician um, who can help me in the adult things I might not be as strong in, though these days I'm much better at adult medicine than pediatric medicine. So that's where telemedicine really got started. We started doing running a telemedicine clinic out of a small, actually a pediatric office originally in Georgetown. And then we had too many adults who wanted to come to the pediatric office. So we moved into another office and it was a lot more complicated then than it is now. And really realized the benefits. We had a lot more people on hydroxyurea, a lot more people getting disease modifying therapy, a lot more opportunity to utilize individualized care plans both for pain as well as for transfusions and started to understand how we could operationalize them. And we actually built a network um, called SC Squared, stood for South Carolina Sickle Cell. And it was temporarily very successful. We developed spokes and it was a hub and spoke model of care. Um, we developed spokes from Charleston in Columbia, in Georgetown and in Beaufort, South Carolina really starting to understand how to use telemedicine in a way that was incredibly effective. At that time, I had to use four different, four different systems of telemedicine because of course, like we all can't get along and use the same electronic medical record system, hospitals couldn't get along and use the same telemedicine system. So that was interesting. I learned how to do a lot of those things. And um, we, we began to build this idea of how do you bring more care to more people most effectively? From here, I always wonder if you have more hours in a day than I have or something, because I see you're on Twitter doing advocacy, you're doing uh, adult care and, and really teaching other people to do adult care, creating national programs for adult care. You're having NIH grants to get people uh, into stroke screening, you're um, you know, involved in every clinical trial and enrolling lots of patients on them and talking at every meeting I go to. And so what's got you fired up now? What are you most excited about that you're working on now? I'm most excited about an NIH protocol that we, or an NIH grant we just submitted. 
that is based on a lot of this work. And right, the idea is it is fantastic that we have all these new therapeutics. I am thrilled to have been a part of all of these different trials. I'm thrilled to continue to be a part of gene therapy trials. But if we can't get these medications to the people who need them, there's no point. And I could tell you stories that, are, I mean, I saw a man the other day, he's 42. Uh, he hasn't been in an ER since 2018. He gets some hydroxyurea, but I'm not really sure where he gets it from. Uh, he doesn't have a primary care doctor exactly, kind of goes to a doc in the box now and again, and they refill it for him. He has very, very few pain crises. And he came because he actually needed a shoulder replaced. And our pre-op group here in Alabama has gotten really good at calling us now and helping to optimize people for surgery. He's never in his life seen a hematologist and he has kidney damage that is severe and he has severe pulmonary hypertension. And all of this has gone completely unnoticed by anyone. And this shouldn't be happening in this country. This shouldn't have been missed. And while pain is obviously one of the most important parts of sickle cell disease, it is not all of it. And sometimes people who are not having pain may be sick and we're underestimating the number of affected people because he's not getting caught on ICD-9 and 10 codes for sickle cell crisis. And so this is, and I, I tell you these cases all day. I see them every other week. And this was true in South Carolina too. People who can live so much longer and better and stronger, who hopefully we can avoid dialysis and hopefully we can improve their outcomes, not just about pain. Pain is important, but it's more than that. So this new grant is, um, we're really excited, we're really hopeful, and it is about how to identify, uh, engage with, identify, and recruit patients into care who need to be in care. How do we find them and how do they find us? And how do we create a mechanism that makes them less fearful of the medical community where they've often been so stigmatized and understand that we're here to help and that we want to provide wraparound care, and also that we wanna help figure out how do they get from point A to B, point B. We've developed an Uber health program. So that's how we get patients often to our clinic here. We're looking to partner with our foundations. We have some great partnerships about bringing those patients into care. We have one phenomenal foundation in Tuskegee. They bought a van and they bring our patients to clinic from two to two and a half hours away. And these are things that I think are truly doable. We just have to figure out how. So that's what the grant's about. So I'm super excited about that. And I think, you know, it's more than just sickle cell disease, right? So one of the things we know that has failed is all of the attempts for a long time, and I've done this work through our HRSA project, right? The Sickle Cell Disease Treatment Demonstration Project. The goals of that project for a long time have been about primary care and teaching primary care doctors to deliver sickle cell care. And I continue to find that to be completely unethical. We don't ask them to treat cancer. We don't ask primary care doctors to treat hemophilia why in the world would we expect them to treat sickle cell disease and become experts? And it's complicated. And as adults, it gets more and more complicated with multi-system disease. And we shouldn't have that expectation. It's not fair to the providers, but it's not fair to our patients. It's completely discriminatory. I think it's, that's a really important point. And I, I think it's it's also just not realistic. I mean, the, the, the doctors, they can't keep up on everything. And you have a patient who's got a lot of um, care needs, and they're not an expert in that. So you, it's just impossible to find doctors for all of those patients, you know, even inadequately 
train for sickle cell doctors. What we're seeing is the solution around the country is people like yourself who are pediatric hematologists really stepping into the fold and maybe working with an internist or trying, you know, desperately to recruit an adult hematologist. But um, we, we need a we need an adult care workforce. And, and uh, I, I think that's part of the problem for the patients. I know we, we have issues where, you know, patients grow up out of our center and then they can't they can't get in to see another doctor and you know, we see them two years later and they're in big trouble and they just haven't seen anybody in two years. And that's the other thing that we're, we're excited about. It's, it's developing. So we hope that, that our, our grant will develop the tools for identifying these people who are lost to care. And then we're doing a couple of projects to build infrastructure. So um, one of them is the American Society of Hematology has been an awesome partner and they have allowed us to develop a, work, a workshop for building sickle cell centers. And this is not a workshop about how to take care of people. That's separate. This is how do you build infrastructure? How do you write a business plan? How do you convince your C-suite that this is important? Um, I like to always say that I can speak both sides of the fence. I like to improve lives and improve outcomes and make people feel better. And I like to save money because if I make them feel better, they're not in the hospital as much. And it's a win-win all the way. So that's a lot of what we've been working on. And um, we've also been working on an APP or an Advanced Practice Provider Fellowship because to increase our workforce, it's gonna take more than just doctors. And it's gonna take more than hematologists. So we hope to broaden this to primary care doctors as well. Amazing. I mean, there's so much stuff there that's going on. I, I, it's probably hard for you to keep it all straight in your head sometimes. It's, uh, there's a lot of, lot of moving parts. But uh, I got to say, um, you know, this ASH workshop for building adult centers. First of all, Detroit Warriors, if you're listening, we're going to be going to the one this year and we're going to learn how to amplify things over here. So thank you for that. This is year two. How have things been going? So how, how did that first cohort that came, how, how did, what are the results? How, what have you seen so far? Anything exciting? It was awesome. It was a totally new experience for all of us. Um, my co-chairs are, by the way, equally as awesome. This isn't by any stretch just about me. Um, Dr. Wally Smith and Dr. Sophie Lanscron are phenomenal co-chairs and Dr. John Roberts, who helped found this idea and talk Ash into it, couldn't do it without any of them. Um, and Dr. Payal Desai has joined us as a co-chair this year. Uh, it was four of the most phenomenal, invigorating, exhausting days. It was like ash on steroids. It was so cool to see so many people who want to do this. You know, there's all these ideas that people don't want to take care of adults with sickle cell disease. And frankly, that's just not true. There are a lot of people who want to take care of adults living with sickle cell disease. What we don't have enough of is administrators who want to support our goals to do that. And so getting these individuals together in a room and talking about how to do this, we learned from each other, they learned from us. You know, we had 10 programs initially in the first cohort and there's certainly ranges of success. We've seen some, you know, amazing outcomes. Some got stonewalled because of coronavirus. They had, but they're picking up their pace again. And this coming year is, uh, we're trying something slightly new and it's pretty cool that we have first year groups and second year groups. And so our first year groups, Detroit, you'll get to learn from Pennsylvania, who, who also went through this last year. Bummed we have to do it virtually, 
there's definitely something to be said about doing it in person. We will be a little less, I think, exhausted. It was, it was truly amazingly exhausting. I mean, in, even now to see how many applications we got, how many people want to build adult centers. And so what we also learned, though, is that once you built an adult center, you needed a home for that center. And what we don't have in or we didn't have in the world of sickle cell disease is something of our own, something provider-based, something center-based. And so uh, we have gotten together and developed what we call NASAC, or the National Alliance of Sickle Cell Centers, so that we have a home for all of us. What are you trying to do with NASAC? It, it's, a, it's a separate 501c3, and it's trying to get like a HRSA designation for centers and support for the centers and maybe 340B access. And- all of those things. Um, it, it really came with a couple of goals. When, when we've been planning this, we, we finally executed it. It's been in the works pretty much since we started talking about the workshop now like two and a half years ago. And the idea is you have the SCDAA, which is a you know fa- fantastic group, but it's a group that's really focused on our patients and community-based organizations. And then you have the American Society of Hematology. Again, they're awesome. They've done a tremendous amount for sickle cell disease, but sickle cell is not their only sport. And they are really more on the research focus. And what we need to do is figure out how to deliver the absolute best clinical care for patients, not just in a research way, but in a quality improvement way. When you look at cystic fibrosis, where, you know, I hold my, I tip my hat to cystic fibrosis all the time. They've made headway because they have done such an amazing quality improvement job. And it's the same in pediatric cancer with all of, with POG and now COG, right? If we didn't have groups like that, we couldn't, we can't do the things we need to do to get better. And that's what we're missing in sickle cell. And so that's where NASAC came from. Who's a member of NASAC now? We just officially incorporated in December. Right now, the only members are board members. And in fact, you'll um, soon we'll have a website, right? You, nothing's real without a website anymore. And it'll be sicklecellcenters.org. That's going to be the website. Don't go there yet. It's not live. Um, but it will have applications. And our, our goal is truly to be as inclusive as possible. This isn't to be exclusionary. And it's to be inclusive to build as many centers as you can. So if you're not a full center, that you could be an affiliate center or you could be an associate center until you have all the pieces. And the goal is to help people find the pieces and put them together. The goal is also to do quality improvement. So, you know, right now, right, we have these new drugs. We don't really know who's best to get the new drugs. We really have no idea of a comparative analysis strategy. And this would allow us to do that. We're using Grandad, which is a quality improvement-based registry um, that will require quality improvement-based data points so that we can specifically look at Not just things like if you're taking hydroxyurea, but are you getting your eye exams? Are you making sure that you are, as a provider, ensuring everybody you take care of has urine, albumin, creatinines done at the appropriate time? And all the other things that we all, I think as sickle cell providers, consider important, TCDs in children, but things that haven't yet been labeled quality improvement in the way that we want them to. That's a big part of it. Then the other part you also asked about is our goal is to align with HRSA in the sickle cell disease treatment demonstration project and to really fight for 340B as well as a comprehensive care model because we have people out there who want to work with our kids and adults with sickle cell and we need to be treated and paid fairly in terms of making sure patients have access to mental health and social workers and pharmacists that right now our cancer patients get 
but our sickle cell patients aren't. Just amazing work. I mean, you're truly the physician advocate that this disease space is desperate for. So thank you so much for putting in all this time and effort. Um, we appreciate having you as a colleague and we appreciate you spending some time with us after a busy clinic day. My pleasure. It's really, you know, between the, the new grant that we've put out that I'm excited about. And, and you know, again, it, it's not just sickle cell disease, right? What else in the community are, are we not doing a good job of because we have trouble getting patients to the specialists that they need? Sickle cell is just an example. And, you know, chronic kidney disease in our Black and African-American patients, we've got to do a better job there. And how can this help model how we do that? I think that you could use this in lots of examples, but for sickle cell, it's, it's just time. It's time for our patients. They've certainly waited too long. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, warriors, there you have it. Dr. Julie Cantor, University of Alabama, Birmingham, go follow her on Twitter at JKW444. Keep an eye on what she's doing. She's, she's always up to something uh, innovative and exciting. Thank you so much, Dr. Cantor. My pleasure. Hopefully we'll get to be together in person soon. For sure. I hope so. All right, Dr. Z, now we're on to my favorite part of the episode where Dr. Z tells me what's going on in his Snapchats and his Twitter, and now he's got a new one. What's it called? Clubhouse. It's exclusive, though, man. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a member. Invite I'm only. I'm not asking to be. I'm just saying I'm not. Whether you like it or not, you're going to jump into the Clubhouse. We're going to make that happen. I got my invite from Hertz. Nice. So it was meaningful and special to me that he... Uh, Decided that I was worthy of being invited into the clubhouse. I'm on the Instagram now. I'm getting there. I did see that. I'm proud of you, man. So what, what's happening, Dr. Z? Oh, man, there's a lot. We haven't done one of these what's happening now in quite some time because we've had such good guests along the way um, that we've just not had time to do one of these. So there's been a lot that's happening. But most importantly, you know, the thing that I, there's a couple things I want to talk about, Dr. Mike. The first thing is the COVID vaccine is definitely what's happening now. I got my COVID vaccine. I got mine too. And there's been a lot of chatter about the COVID vaccine. There's been a lot of chatter about whether or not it's a good idea, specifically for sickle cell patients. Um, should sickle cell patients get the COVID vaccine? If they do, why? If they don't, why not? And um, I've been watching a lot of these discussions unfold around, of course, the common recurring theme of medical distrust and this this bridge of trust between providers and, and patients that's sort of burned down over the years. There's a lot of thought around the, the rapidity with which this vaccine was developed, the lack of research in sickle cell patients and um, how they do with this vaccine. So I wanted to touch base on that. You know, one of the things that I just literally, before we recorded this podcast, I was in a room on Clubhouse with a bunch of warriors uh, talking about this specific issue. And, you know, one of the things that I was telling them is a big reason for me wanting to get the vaccine, especially considering that I'm one of those people that has had really bad reactions to the flu shot twice. I told them about that whole story. And I told them that despite that, I was pretty anxious getting the COVID vaccine because I, I didn't know how this was going to go. Truly, you know, having lost my sight from the flu shot one time and getting it back, thankfully, and then losing the ability to walk for a few weeks. The second time I stopped getting the flu shot. So I was really anxious about, about COVID and, um, and, and the vaccine. But to me, I felt a moral obligation to get the COVID vaccine because it was going to be something that I 
suggest my patients get. And to me, it felt like an obligation I had to the patient community. Yes, there's all the other, all the other advantages of the COVID vaccine, protecting you know, your family, the elderly, your colleagues, your patients. But more than that, a sort of a badge of trust, I wanted to show them that I wouldn't ask them to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Where do you stand on that, Dr. Mike? How do you feel about the COVID vaccine and sickle cell disease? In general, I'm, I'm pretty pro-vaccine. So I think, you know, we're, we're fortunate to live in a time where we, we don't often see the ravages of, of these diseases because we have great vaccines. So, you know, we didn't grow up with polio and see a lot of paralyzed kids. We didn't grow up with smallpox and see people dying and being disfigured, um, even measles and um, now even chickenpox. Um, we, we almost never see anymore. Um, but I, I think this year was kind of a window into, you know, what, what the world could be like if we didn't have vaccines. COVID is a serious thing. We lost hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. Um, this year from, from COVID. And, uh, you know, there's a huge, huge population at risk, you know, continues to be at risk. And it won't slow down in, until, you know, more than half, maybe more than 70% of the population um, has antibodies and, and is you know resistant to it and uh, we call it herd immunity so I, I think you know the only way we're going to get there without just you know massive number of deaths is with vaccination absolutely agree I appreciate people saying you know this was rushed through I think this is you know nothing short of the moon landing or the uh, d-day invasion I mean in one year to go from identifying a new virus, to coming up with the potential to eradicate it is, I, I think, you know, we live in a, a time of miracles and wonders. And, you know, now we've got to execute, we got to um, go through with it to stop the disease. And, and I think, you know, we always weigh risks and benefits. And so I, I think the benefit of this is it's going to save a lot of lives. It's going to allow us to, to open up and see each other again and, and really get back to, to life. I think, you know, that's a huge, huge benefit. So then the question is, what is the risk? And, and it was rushed. We don't have long-term data on any of this. But I, I think, you know, the way this vaccine is made, I don't have concerns about long-term problems. You never know. I mean, I, I think caveat, you never know. But this was tested in tens of thousands of people. I mean, 46,000 people in the Pfizer trial. Yeah. And, and then about the same in the Moderna trial, and you know, the J&J trial. I mean, so you're, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And now I, I think 5 million people already vaccinated in the U.S. So I think it's probably very safe. Now, nothing's 100% safe. I mean, the flu shot is safe, but but Dr. Z gets, uh, you know, MS from the flu shot. So, you know, I, I get the flu shot and I tell my patients to get the flu shot, but you can have side effects from it. I think this will be no different, but I think benefit way outweighs the risk for this one. So I got it. I would recommend it to my family, to my patients. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think one of the things that came up in our clubhouse room when we were talking about this was, you know, it's been a long time since we've talked about COVID and sickle cell disease on the podcast. We talked about it initially, but we've learned some things since that time. In fact, Tomorrow, uh, well, by the time this podcast is out, our Blood Advances publication that looked at patients with COVID and sickle cell disease in Detroit, New York, Boston, and Chicago will, will have been published. We learned some things about sickle cell disease and COVID and that there's some real risk to getting COVID when you have sickle cell disease, especially when you're 
older, not on disease-modifying therapy, have kidney disease, have pulmonary hypertension, you have a higher risk of dying. You may not, but certainly your risk is higher than that of the general population. So one of the themes we discussed was, I know from the study of 46,000 people that this vaccine was given to in the clinical trial setting, what the worst case scenario was for those 46,000 patients that got the vaccine. They had anaphylaxis, allergic reactions, you know, uh, people with nausea and headache and flu-like symptoms. Okay, I know that. That's a controlled demolition. With sickle cell disease and COVID infection, that's an uncontrolled demolition. I have no idea which way things are headed. I mean, we had a few deaths that were pretty young, both in our, our cohort and also in the secure sickle cell disease registry that's more global. There were some young deaths. We do have some predictors of who may have a bad outcome. But, but in the end, COVID and sickle cell disease is still no joke. The mortality in our cohort was about 10%. That's a big number. And I can certainly tell you that the vaccine's not going to kill you, right? I'm confident saying that the vaccine is not going to kill you based on the data that we have. And I can tell you based on the data that we have, 10% of patients with sickle cell disease in this cohort died. Right. And, 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 and that's something that I really want warriors to think about. So yes, think about it, take your time, make an informed decision, but don't underestimate the toll potentially of COVID in sickle cell disease. You are not the general population as warriors. You are a high risk group. And that's something you really need to consider when you make a decision. I don't know, Dr. Zia. I think most of the people I'm talking to, you know, most of the warriors I'm talking to are uh, excited to get the vaccine, not a, not as much apprehensive. On social media, I'll say it's, it's I would say it's 50-50. I, I know you love social media, Dr. Z, but it doesn't reflect real life completely. <laughs> that is where we will agree to disagree, my friend. All right, that's what I have on what's happening now for you, Dr. C. That was great. All right, see you on the other side. Dr. C, we are back with another segment of Word of the Day. All right, this is where Dr. Z riddles me into something. I'm actually really excited about this word because this is something that I still kind of struggle to understand. Me and you have talked about this word many times over the last six years that I've known you, but it's still pretty pretty much an enigma to me. Uh, but something that's becoming more important as the therapeutic landscape of sickle cell disease is changing, as we're getting new drugs. There is a lot to be said about how much drugs cost, how drugs are paid for, who pays for them, how that whole system works. The word of the day is, is a program that other rare disease spaces have used to help tailor costs, pricing of medications that make it favorable to providers and patients. Do you see where I'm heading? I, I know where you're going. 340B. 340B, the 340B program. So the, the 340B program, uh, for those who aren't familiar, is a federal government program that was started with really uh, 
a really, I think, noble goal. So the federal government, mostly through the um, HRSA. Or- I hear HRSA all the time. And we talked about it on this episode a few times with Dr. Cantor. So when we talk about HRSA, what we're talking about is a federal branch of government called the Health Resources and Services Administration. That's a federal agency that specifically is geared to improving access to healthcare services. And and it's an enormous um, government agency and has lots of different, uh, different parts to it. Like it's part of the Department of Health and Human Services, but it's got maternal child health bureau, all all sorts of uh, pieces to it. And they provide funding for a lot of different health related things. So for instance, when HIV, you know, was spreading throughout the country and HIV treatment was very specialized, they said, you know, we need we need to support specialized centers to take care of people with HIV. And there was a young man called Ryan White who had HIV. So they called them the Ryan White um, HIV centers and, and little uh, clinics throughout the country that were taking care of people with HIV applied to be a part of this. And they would get some money from the federal government to, to be an HIV clinic. There were hemophilia treatment centers that were similar. There were, you know, all, all sorts of government-sponsored entities, uh, federally qualified health centers. So the the government would send out grants, and these might be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. But what they found was that the things they were trying to do to provide comprehensive care, you might need a social worker, a psychologist, you might need a physical therapist, a genetic counselor, a dietitian, a pulmonary um, specialist. And to provide all of that care, there wasn't enough money in the grant. And so in 1992, as part of the Veterans Administration Act, they put in a section uh, called 340B that said that the manufacturers of drugs, the pharmaceutical companies, would have to sell the drugs to these qualified entities, which were the the grantees. So if you're a Ryan White um, HIV center, then the federal government had to sell you medications at a price that was discounted from what everybody else was paying. So they figured out a way to figure out the average wholesale cost that everybody else is paying. And the manufacturers had to sell it to you for less than that. And then you could then prescribe that to your patients, charge their insurance company, and take the profit that you made off of that and use it to pay for those things, the social worker, the physical therapist, the genetic counselor. And so there are several different kinds of entities, the Ryan White centers, the hemophilia treatment centers, but also cancer hospitals, children's hospitals, disproportionate share hospitals who take care of a lot of people um, who are you know, underserved or, or don't have insurance. And so they, they can make money off of providing these drugs to their patients and then wrap that money back into care for the patients. And unfortunately, sickle cell is not one of those entities. We don't have a a HRSA comprehensive center grant. Um, We don't have uh, 340B access. It's just the the history of it was that we we didn't have HRSA grant status for sickle cell center. So I, I think, you know, that that's definitely something we need. And I, I think it's, it's, I think something important that the community could rally around because 
in the places where you have those, in the HIV centers and the hemophilia centers, it brings a lot of resources in and provides comprehensive care, access to care, and, and really improves care overall. It allows for a center network to develop um, with specialists and not just doctor specialists, but you know, psychology specialists, social work specialists, um, nursing specialists in that area. When we say 340B, we're talking about this government program um, that allows these designated entities to make money out of uh, providing drugs to their patients and use that money to care for those patients. So that's 340B. Why is that important in sickle cell disease right now? In order for that program to work, you need there to be medications and medications that cost money because you know you make a small small amount on each medicine and and that money goes back into the to the care and until now we we had really hydroxyurea which wasn't wasn't very costly so even if you had 340b a few years ago um, there wouldn't have been an opportunity to you know really generate enough money to provide comprehensive care but now as we're starting to have more medications I, I think it's really a, a uh, potential there, um, whether it's the chelation drugs, Oxbrita, Dacio, or a lot of things that uh, hopefully will be coming down the, down the pipe. I think, you know, there's, there's opportunities there. And the nice thing about these programs is you don't have to be on those medicines to get the care. So, uh, you know, the, the money that is generated all goes into the center and the center, you know, provides care for everybody. So um, everybody, everybody benefits. Amazing. Amazing. I really hope that we can figure out how to make this work for sickle cell disease. And I've had sort of a, at least I would say a passenger side view to seeing what it's done for our hemophilia treatment center here in Detroit. And I pray for the day that we can get to the point where sickle cell disease gets to be privy to, to those types of resources and, 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 and that type of funding. I guess we can only hope but um, we've got some work to do as far as advocacy and lobbying and, you know, some grassroots movements to, to really make it a reality, I think. Absolutely. But I, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's so many things we could work on, but I, I think this is one that's, uh, you know, should be a priority because I think it can help with a lot of the other, um, other issues. I, I, you know, I think it's, it's a way to make sickle cell clinics financially viable. And that means that more people will open sickle cell clinics or sickle cell clinics that open will be able to stay open or expand. And that means more access to care and, and hopefully high quality care. Yeah. And more access to care is that's the, that's the recipe to success. Dr. C, thank you for dropping some bombs of knowledge on us. Appreciate you. Anytime, Dr. Z. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Dr. C, um, today's episode was inspiring to me. It was nice to hear a little bit about Julie Cantor from just not a research and work standpoint. Like I said, when we were talking to, to Dr. Cantor, she amazes me. I mean, so much energy. She's doing so many things and, uh, you know, really an advocate, a fierce advocate for our warriors. Through and through, a champion, really. I mean, just a champion. So, you know, I'm glad we were able to talk about uh, some of the exciting things that she's up to 
the the National Alliance of Sickle Cell Centers that's coming. And, and, and I'm really happy we were able to talk about the 340B program because it's important for warriors to know a little bit about the business of medicine too. I think so. It really impacts their care. So I think having just at least a little bit of an insider view there is, is helpful. And and we talked about the COVID vaccine. Um, hopefully by the time people hear this, they'll be getting it. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully by this by the time this podcast is out, you guys will know that I'm having regular um, clubhouse-based cheat code happy hours where I'm just going to be in a room on Wednesdays chopping it up with warriors about anything that's on their mind. And, and uh, for for, you know, us non-social uh, media savvy folks. What is Clubhouse, Dr. Z? Clubhouse is a new social media app that's gaining quite a bit of popularity. It's um, it's a conversation-based app because one of the things about the voice, the power of human voice, is that it's very engaging. And um, podcasts are great, but they can only go so far. It's very static. Right? So we have this podcast, and if a warrior has a question during the podcast, they can't really ask it. So my goal is in this clubhouse forum to provide warriors a place to to come and be like, hey, Dr. Z, we listened to last week's episode, and, and this came up. What do, what do you think about this? You guys said this. It wasn't really clear to me. Um, it gives them a chance to be part of this. And to me, that's pretty exciting. You know, today, we just jumped on for the first time today, right before this podcast, and there was about... 15, 20 people in that room. Very cool. Asking great questions. The, the one thing, though, is this is uh, it's exclusive. This is your country club clubhouse. And uh, <laughs> so you got you got to be invited. It's invitation only. They're trying to keep the crazy people out. I, I, I well, This might surprise you. I wasn't the cool kid growing up. I know that comes as a shock. It, it actually does. So... It's been really, uh, it's been, it's been interesting to be part of this exclusive club up front, um, but you know it's going to open up pretty quickly, and uh, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to play a big role in the advocacy that we do. Anyways, that is all I have for this episode, Doctor C. Anything else you want to add? No, keep keep living well with sickle cell. 2021 is going to be a lot better than 2020. Yeah, I you know I went through that whole process that happens every uh, every January where you write 2020 and you have to cross it out and put 2021. But I gotta t- I gotta tell you, man, there was I had a lot of pleasure in crossing out 2020 <laughs> every time I had to. Um, yeah, keep living well with sickle cell. Go follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. Go follow Dr. C at Imagineer, and we will catch you next time. Peace. <laughs>